Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's programme all about the built environment. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up. When we speak about Roman, about his role, about his specific role in this generation in Ukraine, for me and for many people in Ukraine, this is a symbol of uh, free Ukraine and new independent generation of Ukrainians. We assess urban activism and its power in saving our cities. As rebuilding efforts in Ukraine continue to evolve while war rages on, we explore how citizens are fighting for new city projects that protect heritage while also nurturing a better urban environment for all. Plus, we visit a corner of Helsinki. There's long been a hub for grassroots culture to see how plans for a new entertainment centre have sparked a backlash among locals. That's coming up over the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. In August, a 200-year-old building was illegally demolished in an historical neighbourhood of Ukraine's capital, Kyiv. It marks a worrying return to the trend of illegal demolitions and developments of modern buildings in the place of heritage structures in Ukraine that has continued even following Russia's full-scale invasion. Until last summer, Roman Ratushny was one of the activists leading the fight back against illegal development. He had made it his life's work to protect a wild green space in the centre of Kyiv and had inspired Ukrainians across the country in the process. But just a few weeks before his 25th birthday, Ratushny was killed in action on the front line in Ukraine. So, with illegal demolitions continuing, how can a new generation of activists preserve their country's unique architectural and ecological heritage? Monocle's Julia Leiska reports on the legacy of Roman Ratushny in Kyiv. On the 18th of June 2022, people began to gather in Ukraine's central square, Maidan Nezaloshnosti. A big open space at the heart of the country's capital, Kyiv, it translates as Independence Square. In the turbulent decades following the fall of the Soviet Union, it had been reclaimed by Ukrainians as a setting for revolution in their nation's quest for democracy and sovereignty. It had seen a million people stand together in protest, concerts given in solidarity by Ukraine's most popular musicians, and university students set up tents for week-long sleep-ins in the bitter cold. But that summer's day, the atmosphere was muted. As people slowly made their way from steep streets above onto the flat pavings of the square, a hush descended. They were there to pay their respects, Tetyana Teren, director of PEN Ukraine, told me. Roman Ratushnei represented a new generation of Ukrainians born already in uh, independent Ukraine, a famous Ukrainian dissident publicist uh, Miroslav Marinovich uh, told that this is a generation that was born with freedom inside them. Killed on the front line at the age of just 24, Roman Ratushny was renowned for his activism across Ukraine. Having come of age in Ukraine's Revolution of Dignity in the winter of 2013 to 2014, Ratushny had battled to save Protesiv Yar, an oasis of wilderness in central Kyiv, from illegal development. He had become a leading figure in the fight to protect historical buildings and green spaces from corruption and backhand deals. It was his bravery that had inspired people most. Previous generations, and my generation too, had to fight for our freedom inside us because of all these 
Soviet heritage which we received, but especially this generation was really free. And maybe you remember that Roman Ratushny, when he filmed these like short comments, video comments, usually he told at the beginning, I am Roman Ratushny, uh, Ukrainian citizen, uh, free person, free Ukrainian. So I think, first of all, when we speak about Roman, about his role, about his specific role in this generation in Ukraine, for me and for many people in Ukraine, this is a symbol of uh, free Ukraine and new independent generation of Ukrainians. But Ratoshny's work wasn't without huge risks. Natalia Korobenko, a charity foundation project manager, was one of the ordinary Ukrainians who got involved in activism when her local park in a suburb of Kyiv was threatened by illegal development in 2018. Uh, firstly, uh, there were a lot of people who were living close to this territory. They started to fight with this. I was joined uh, to them a little later. But then, when I had got involved, we started to involve different news, different politicians, and uh, we started to write more in society uh, network. They started blocked uh, our road because the government didn't see us. The government didn't want to speak with us about this situation and they didn't want to solve this problem. And we just blocked uh, road and only after this the government saw us and uh, they started communicate with us. But they didn't solve anything. They just pretend that they want to do something. But frustrations at inaction were only the beginning, Korobanko told me. Things were about to become a lot more dangerous. After that time, when Builder Company put up the fence, and we can't go to this park, we can't go into our park, uh, we started fight with force. And uh, we burned the fence, and uh, we had fight with the security company. And uh, it was really dangerous situation because security company, they had knives, and someone was talking that they have uh, guns and others. But uh, our people were really brave, and they didn't uh, afraid of this. There was uh, one moment uh, when uh, we really uh, were scared to go home alone because uh, buildings in our country, it is millions of dollars and builders can uh, kill you for this money. And uh, sometimes we were scared about our relatives and uh, we were scared to go to home alone. And uh, it was really hard. Even my friends uh, proposed me to live in their house for my uh, protection. The events described by Korobenko feel like a lifetime ago for many Ukrainians. Four years after she attended the rallies, Korobenko found herself sheltering from an even more immediate threat in bomb shelters when Russia unleashed its full-scale invasion of Ukraine in 2022. The months-long build-up of Russian troops on the border with Ukraine has turned now into an invasion. Ukraine under attack. But as Dmitro Perov, activist and deputy head of the Department for the Protection of Cultural Heritage at the Kiev City State Administration told me, the war has made the situation even more difficult. The closer the war comes to its logical ending with Ukrainian victory and the liberation of all occupied territory, the more investment and money in businesses are returning to Ukraine. But these changes are also directly correlated with increased threats to our cultural heritage. Why? 
In Ukraine, businesses and investors are moving forward and developing independently on a private basis. The state can't quite keep up with the way the market is moving and even our laws on the protection of cultural heritage haven't changed in the past 20 years. Dmitro explains that developers aren't afraid of the financial consequences they face after damaging historical buildings. If anything, the lack of protection hastens their destruction on. But, as Dmitro says, the specific circumstances of the state of war Ukraine finds itself in is also adding fuel to the fire. Under martial law, mass gatherings are banned. The street protest itself has been ripped out of its place in Ukrainian society. If before the war a developer started destroying a one-story or two-story historical building in the center of the city in order to build 20-25-story block in its place, locals, socially conscious citizens and activists would come out and they would stop this work. Now, though, those mass protests are banned. That's a huge issue. Many of the leading activists are on the front line and too many have been killed defending Ukraine. But at the same time, businessmen and people in the building industry have mostly stayed here, away from the fighting. And they have continued their commercial activities. And some of these market players are taking advantage of this vacuum when there are no protests. Of course, we can use electronic democracy to sign e-petitions or write open letters. We're actively using these tools to protect our cultural heritage from being destroyed. And we successfully stop them from damaging one building and then another. But there is too much illegal destruction going on. The amount has increased exponentially. But even with this level of loss all around them, the work started by activists like Roman Ratoshny has to continue for Ukrainians. They have no other choice, Teren tells me. You know, I remember the funeral of Roman Ratoshny uh, very well. I remember this atmosphere, this pain everywhere at uh, the Ukrainian independence square in the heart of Maidan. And I remember that it was first time for me when I started to think how we can continue legacy work and memory of these people using cultural tools. Because I am a journalist and cultural manager, and this is my type of thinking about this terrifying war reality around us. Today, unfortunately, we have had so many losses in every area in Ukraine and in our cultural area too. And I just understood that this is our task for many, not just decades, I think for many generations of Ukrainian cultural managers to work with legacy and memory of killed Ukrainians, of Ukrainians who were killed by Russia within this uh, full-scale genocidal war. So the idea for a festival that would continue Roman's legacy was born. It's also important to remember that Roman Ratoshny not only uh, fought for this land in Protasivyar area, he also wanted to bring this cultural aspect to this community, to this area in Kiev, in the Ukrainian capital. And he started to organize first cultural events in this area in Kiev. So our idea was not like something new in this context. We just wanted to continue Roman's work and Roman's ideas. And our task was to bring 
bigger scale for this idea to create a team, to create something like institution for all these ideas. And then we started to discuss this idea and many Ukrainian cultural managers, human rights defenders, writers decided to support this idea. Roman decided to organize cinema events in the Protasivyar area. And our idea was to bring more different formats to this festival. And because of that, we organized human rights discussions. For example, we organized literary readings, concerts, presentations, lectures, and other formats within the festival. And of course, uh, we want to continue this format. We want to to continue to combine human rights part of the festival and art part of the festival. And we already started to think about next season of the festival. We going to start it again in May 2024. And in a fitting tribute to Roman's memory, the spirit of the festival isn't intended to remain within the peaceful leafy bounds of Protasivyar. Within our discussion program, we organized uh, some events, some discussions uh, dedicated especially to this activism and uh, this work with uh, green zones in any cities in Ukraine. And it was very important to invite different active Ukrainians who work with such issues and uh, fighting for such green zones in their cities. So I think it was like a beginning of this conversation. And for us, it's really vital moment to continue this conversation, especially in this area, because it was so important for Oman. And for us, it was also one of our ideas when we started the festival to give an example for other communities in Kyiv, but also in Ukraine, how you can fight for your rights in this situation. What was really very important that Roman united so many people around him. He united this community. But the festival now is not only about Protasivyar community. So many people from other parts of Kiev and other Ukrainian towns and cities visited the festival. So I do hope that Protasivyar will be like Roman himself, Proptasivyar, will be a symbol, a great example of success for other active Ukrainians, for other activists and other communities, how you can save your land and your place, your area, and to fight for your rights. When I visited Proptasivyar this summer, I climbed to the top of the hill. It wasn't a festival day, and so it was quiet all around. Instead, on the dark green hillside awash with foliage, I could hear the sounds of Kyiv. Something Mitroparov had told me rang true in my mind. Kyiv isn't just a word. It is an image. It is a city with an ancient history, with steep slopes that run down to the river Dnipro, with twisting cobbled streets. Kyiv is a city of blue and green church domes like St. Sophia's Cathedral and little streets full of wonders from the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. When you live in a place like Kyiv, you understand what you are fighting for. The challenge for Ukrainian politicians and lawmakers now is to support civil society. For when Ukraine's defenders come home, will they recognise the cities that they fought for? For Monocle Radio, I'm Julia Lassica.
perhaps best known as the site of the annual Flow Festival, Helsinki's Suvalati, an early 20th century gasworks district, has recently been experiencing somewhat of an existential threat. Development plans for this crucial hub of the Finnish capital's grassroots culture, which propose the building of a large entertainment centre, hotel and office spaces, have brought about protests and calls for protection. So what is next for this do-it-yourself mecca? With Stenger, sent us this report. In early summer, demonstrators marched through an old industrial area in central Helsinki, shouting Save Suvilahti and Everyone's Helsinki. They were protesting against plans to build an entertainment and hotel complex on a brownfield site in a former gasworks from the early 1900s. That's become a hotbed of the Finnish capital's grassroots cultural scene and is the site of Europe's largest volunteer-built skateboard park, a graffiti-covered fantasy playground that would be obliterated by the new construction plan. The old steampunk-flavored industrial buildings are home to circus and dance groups, art studios and a gallery, and so on. But Suvilahti is best known as the place where the Flow and Turska music festivals are held each summer in the shadow of gigantic gasometers that are more than a century old and are now being fixed up as art spaces. Flow Festival, which has earned a reputation for its adventurous multimedia programming and commitment to sustainability, has been held here in August since 2007, a few years after it started in an abandoned rail warehouse. But due to the planned construction, the festival announced that it would move to a new unnamed location next summer. Flow's artistic director and co-founder, Tuomos Kallio, admits that the change could be difficult since Flow has become almost synonymous with Suvilahti. Obviously, yeah, I mean, for many people, it must be a shock, especially people in Helsinki. They kind of feel that that's, they are kind of a pair, a combination, Flow and Suvilahti. Well, of course, it's this post-industrial look and feel. It really suits the brand, I would say. Oh, it has become part of the brand, the gas cylinders. And you have some big structures there that also block the sound. So we can have a lot of stages in a compact blueprint, which is a surprise for many visitors coming from farther away, that it's not like a huge piece of land. Kallio says the festival had hopes of expanding into the adjacent site occupied by a coal-powered power plant, which closed last spring as part of Finland's plan to become carbon neutral by 2035. However, that property will take a while to empty and detoxify due to cyanide poisoning from decades of burning coal. Yeah, of course, eventually, yes, one day before you can start developing uh, housing like for residents, but for festivals, cyanide is probably the reason why Suvilahti became a cultural <laughs> center because it's it's pretty polluted, the, the ground, so it's really expensive to polish it to the level of residential buildings. Kallio said the festival plans to move to another central location that's easily accessible on foot, bicycle, or by public transport. One such option with historic, modernist architecture might be the recently renovated Olympic Stadium, which dates back to the 1930s and is surrounded by parkland. 
Next summer, the Functionalist Open Air Venue will host 200,000 people for an unprecedented four-night stand by Coldplay. But not Flo, which announced just after I spoke with Kalio that it will stay in Suvilati for another year after all. That's because of complaints filed over the planned new entertainment complex known as Event Hub. One of them was filed by urban activist Johanna Hurula. He set up an NGO called Save Suvilati in response to the city's approval of the Event Hub proposal, which he claims will destroy the soul of the district and shows that the city leaders are hostile toward grassroots culture as symbolized by the DIY skate park. The win moment happened finally, like after Helsinki Council decided to vote in favor of this lobbyist scheme to build a hybrid of an office slash hotel slash concert venue placed on top where there's already existing very flourishing internationally well recognized do-it-yourself skate park. Uh, the favor really unsettled people because it seems, I feel, and many other people relate very strongly, that the Helsinki Council has systematically been basically chasing against the DIY movements. And Helsinki is very, very, very rich in those DIY roots, do-it-yourself organizational roots stemming off from people themselves. And year after year, decade after another, it feels that they are targeted against, they want to build something like uh, given from above. So this kind of a, like true community-based feeling is being neglected. We felt we need to do something. And furthermore, we are demanding that Helsinki Council, Helsinki starts to recognize its richness. It doesn't need to be coming up from like uh, uh, given graciously from above to people. We don't need to brand and innovate. We are doing it like uh, for free. People are doing it for free, and and from the grassroots level, from the yeah. grassroots yeah. level, yeah. and and which is authentic, which yeah. is appealing to local people, to Finnish people, to tourists. People come here for these reasons. They don't come here to check out like offices and right. hotels. Hurula says that Suvilaki represents a non-commercial oasis in an increasingly consumption-driven city. Suvilaki has been appraised. It's a uh, edgy. Is a cool, bit dangerous, but there's nothing dangerous over there. It's just like uh, the urban, old, industrial space is very vibrant and very inspiring to a lot of people. The whole whole Helsinki scene, it's mostly given and targeted to middle class consumerist classes. So there isn't this kind of like free spaces. And like DIY people and like young people who don't have possess a lot of money. They they have a lot of time and they are very active users of, of the city. But they are feeling ever so increasing the pressure. They are being guarded away from shopping malls or wherever because like they don't buy. So we need these kind of a brown spaces, these breathing spots, cultural pockets, if you may. Culture also needs this kind of a, a zero budget culture. You can go and just like immerse and experience and partake without cashing in or something. Yeah. Helsinki's deputy mayor for the urban environment, Anni Sinemäki, has her own roots in the counterculture as a poet and lyricist for a popular political rock band back in the 90s and leader of the Greens. 
She rejects claims that the city is hostile to DIY culture or skateboarders, or that the new building plan will ruin the edgy creative vibe of Sovilati. At a noisy brew pub in Sovilati during Flow Festival, she defends the city's future vision for the district. The detailed plan that includes the event hub, it's also actually a plan which goal is to make this place a really good place for big festivals. And the plans include building of the whole place regarding electricity and the infra so that it will be later much easier to organize events in the whole area, also in the open festival area. Sienemaki denies that the DIY skate park is being sacrificed for that plan. She explains that when it was originally built years ago, the skaters understood that it would only be a temporary location and that they have now been offered a new temporary location nearby and then a permanent one on the old coal plant site once it has been decontaminated. And then we have negotiated with them and also with the financing of temporary skate park and then the permanent skate park. So I wouldn't say that we are like against them, but I think that we have been like trying to solve every situation with them so that they would have a good place to skate. The deputy mayor argues that the new Sovilati plan will make it cheaper to organize events in the area, making it more accessible to lower-budget grassroots groups, and she downplays concerns that the new building complex will disrupt the early 20th century milieu. I understand what people mean that it will be a new building and it's not an old building, but... I think that layers are good, that there will be a building that is more modern, that is from today. On the other hand, that will be perhaps an easier building for certain kind of events or certain kind of production. Sovilati has become the latest battleground between fringe street culture and the bigger cogs of city decision-making and large-scale events. The coming year will tell whether they can coexist in this gritty post-industrial landscape that so often puts forth bright shoots of new culture. Many thanks there to Wif Stenger for that story. And that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Remember to sign up to the podcast to get new episodes direct to you every week. The Urbanist is produced by Carlotta Rabello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, here's a song sung by Horea Kazatska, a group that was present at Roman Ratushny's funeral and the festival which followed it. Thank you for listening, city lovers. <laughs> Oh.